welcome. On behalf of CME Outfitters, I would like to welcome you and thank you for joining us for this CMEO snack titled Prep Inequities. This program has been supported by an educational grant from Gilead Sciences, Inc. I'm Dr. Oni Blackstock, founder and executive director of Health Justice, a racial and health equity consulting firm. I'm also in primary care and HIV physician. I'm excited to be joined today by my esteemed colleague who will now introduce himself. Hello, Dr. Blackstock. It's an honor to be here with you as well. I'm Vincent Kiyama Ramos. I'm uh, the Dean of the Duke University School of Nursing. I'm a nurse practitioner, uh, both uh, certified uh, in primary care and also in psychiatric mental health nursing. I specialize in caring for uh, individuals living with HIV. And, um, and I would say that I particularly focus on the Latino community, uh, but obviously care for a wide variety of patients, but uh, I've been working with Latinos for probably about 20 years. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Dr. Guillermo Ramos. So I'm just going to say to frame the discussion today, I want to briefly review our learning objectives. First, uh, we want to address healthcare provider bias and inequities in clinical approaches to sexual health and PrEP discussions with Black and Hispanic Latino patients. And then second, um, we want to address structural barriers to individualized PrEP care, uh, PrEP care that would optimize uh, patient outcomes. First is some updates around PrEP guidelines. Who is it indicated for? Who's eligible? Because I know we've had some recent updates over the last um, year or so. So that sounds great. So I think uh, generally we think about individuals who have indications for PrEP. Uh, we're talking about uh, anyone who's sexually active, uh, who is an adult or an adolescent, who reports anal or vaginal sex in the past six months and has any of the following. Uh, they may be having sex with an HIV positive partner that is not virally suppressed or is not undetectable or has unknown status. They may have, a, a, in the past six months, a recent onset of a bacterial sexually transmitted infection, or they may have a history of inconsistent uh, condom use or no condom use. Uh, these would be sort of key PrEP indications. In addition, uh, for people who inject drugs, they may have an HIV-positive injection partner, or they may be sharing injection equipment. Um, in terms of some of the clinical eligibility, They've got to have a documented negative HIV test within one week before initiating PrEP, and uh, every two to three months thereafter, an HIV negative test result. They also have to have no signs or symptoms of acute HIV infection, and they have to have no contraindications in terms of other medications or any uh, sort of issues in terms of their health status that would contraindicate initiating mm -hmm. PrEP. Great, thank you. So it seems like there are a number of different groups of people who could potentially really benefit from PrEP and um, mainly you know, folks who may be sexually active, folks who may be um, injecting sort of in general. And then um, also it seems like, you know, just in terms of the clinical indications, generally, you know, if someone doesn't have um, acute HIV infection, as you said, underlying kidney disease, um, you know, PrEP is a safe option. You know, just to to move on a little bit, um, it's so wonderful now that we have a number of options for PrEP, and obviously just for those watching, just remembering that, you know, PrEP is a really highly effective way to prevent HIV infection in people who are HIV negative, and I always think about, like, my patients, like, I feel like 
the more options we have in terms of like taking a medication, like whether it's pill, injectable, other delivery options, that sort of like allows people to like find what is the best fit for them. To most of our um, to our audience, you may be aware that there is Truvada or um, the first approved oral form of PrEP. Um, that is indicated for preventing HIV transmission via um, sex or injection drug use. Um, generally well tolerated. We know, I'm sure, Vincent, from your experience, you know, some patients um, can have over the first few weeks kind of like a startup syndrome with some nausea, maybe some belly pain, um, maybe headache that typically resolves after a few weeks. Um, and some folks can experience weight loss. Um, there's some, you know, people have underlying conditions, can be at risk for um, toxicity to the kidneys um, and to the bones, but generally overall is, is quite safe. And then, you know, more recently, um, we've seen the approval of Discovy, another oral option um, for folks who um, are um, engaging in sex, but it excludes folks who are engaging in um, vaginal, um, receptive vaginal intercourse. So just a note around that, that it's not approved for individuals who are engaging in that specific sexual behavior. Also relatively, I think, well tolerated, you know, maybe you could share what your experience has been prescribing to patients. Um, and, you know, kind of, I always say it has a different side effect profile from Truvada versus like a better profile. We know that like Truvada, you know, the bone and kidney stuff um, is, can be of concern, whereas I think we see less of that with Descovy, but um, we may see more weight gain and, you know, cholesterol and lipids being affected. Just curious what your what your experience has been. I, I completely agree with that. It's beautifully stated, Only I think the because I work with so many young people, I think one of the mm -hmm. challenges is that they may be hearing some of the misinformation about Travada that has been, um, in my view, sort of exaggerated. And so they may come in sort of requesting um, Discovy or saying that they don't want to take Travada. And so I think it has been a useful tool in terms of providing options. I do want to point out, and I'm sort of curious what you think about this, but I also have relied on 2-1-1 with Truvada, mm -hmm. helping people to have an intermittent dosing strategy, uh, especially if they have seasons of risk where it's mm -hmm. very frequent exposures and they don't want to take uh, PrEP daily. It's not my first uh, uh, sort of go-to option, but it is something that I have used. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree, Vincent. It's something that when I was working at the New York City Health Department, we really promoted Citywide, again, I think when people have different options to figure out like what works best for them given their daily routine, given what's going on in their lives, including their sex lives, it's great to be able to offer that as like an additional option. And then obviously now we also have injectable prep. Um, so a different way that folks can take um, prep medication. Um, this obviously is a little bit different in terms of like requiring folks to come into the healthcare setting to get to get the medication. And so I'm just curious, have you seen or um, you know had patients who've maybe preferred injectable versus oral, and what were some of the reasons that they gave? I mean, I think honestly, this is a game changer, and I have a lot of excitement and enthusiasm about long-acting uh, prep and also long-acting treatment, but I know for today we're talking about PrEP. Yeah. But in my view, um, this provides an opportunity for folks to move away from the daily dosing of taking a pill, and it re reduces some of the burden of having to remember, of being concerned, uh, what if I forget, what do I do? And it sort of really speaks to being more prepared and thinking mm -hmm. about one's sexual health in a way that they can sort of plan uh, you know, well in advance. I think only if I'm being really honest and I'm curious about your experiences, 
you know, in the clinics where I work, and I'm currently living in the South and uh, in North Carolina in particular, you know, injectable PrEP has not been something that I've seen mm-hmm. widely in my clinic. And so I work in a department of health uh, where I'm working with people who are primarily underinsured, uninsured, mm-hmm. uh, undocumented, people who are experiencing many psychosocial stressors. And so we as a clinic have not been able to incorporate injectable PrEP uh, in the way that we probably would uh, if we had more resources and if this was something that was more accessible uh, to the masses. And so I'm curious what you're seeing in New York where you are, and uh, it's just a great highlight that matches the focus of what we're talking about today. Yes, I totally hear you. And I was hoping that you had a more positive experience than I had in terms of um, injectable prep, but again, also um, working out of a public city hospital, so publicly funded, again, many of our patients, uninsured, underinsured, and you just, we're just starting to create protocols um, around, you know, providing this as an option for patients, but, you know, having to get, you know, the approval, you know, from the insurance company to cover this, there's just a lot, there, there's some sort of organizational um, barriers that sort of need to be overcome, I think, to make this um, make access easier for, for our patients, but hopefully with time and sort of learning best practices um, from and experiences of different clinical settings, we can um, figure out what, what works the best and, and really um, make sure that our, our patients know it's an option. Um, and then I think one point just wanted to make sure that, you know, I, I have a, I had a few patients who were cisgender women um, who were taking PrEP. And just to say that, like, you know, I think some of the challenges um, that they experienced was, you know, really having to take it every day in order for it to be most effective, where we know um, among folks engaging more in recept- receptive anal intercourse or anal intercourse in general, that there's more um, sort of forgiveness in terms of adherence. So that's also an issue. And I think injectable PrEP can definitely also help with that, you know, with with folks who are struggling, as you mentioned, with having to take a pill daily. Makes sense. That's yes. Yes. As you mentioned at the beginning, you take care of a cross-section of patients, um, and in particular, the focus of a lot of your work, is, as I know, on the Latino community and the impact of HIV. Um, and so I know you are very well aware with the inequities that exist. Um, you know, I think, you know, Truvada, we know, was approved back in 2012, so we have almost more than a decade now of experience but what we've seen is kind of these entrenched um, inequities in terms of who is taking PrEP. So although we know um, Latino and Black people account for a um, majority of new HIV infections, um, they account for, for, for Black Americans, about 8% of those who could benefit from PrEP are taking it. And then for Latino Americans, about 14%. You know, what are you seeing as some of the challenges? And I know we'll talk about this a little later, you know, thinking that we should have gotten better over time, this continues to be an intractable problem. You know, where, where do we need to focus? Sure. I mean, what a great question, Oni. And I think there's sort of two things that I want to highlight. We could spend a lot of time on this, yes. but there are two things I want to share. The first is that I think you nailed it on the head that, you know, we have effective tools. PrEP is certainly an amazing HIV prevention pill or injection that really works. The challenge is how do we get... Yeah that innovation, that uh, very effective preventative measure to the right communities. And as you really think about sort of the racial and ethnic inequities in our country around PrEP, it's pretty distressing because these are system failures. These do not represent, you know, African-American, Black or Latino individuals or other persons of color who are not, uh, you know, saying, hey, if they had an opportunity Mm -hmm. and they were offered PrEP, if it was accessible, if they had adequate coverage, if they could access a provider, 
uh, if they were given information in a way that was health literate mm-hmm. for their needs, that they, you know, wouldn't take it. They will take it. Yeah. The problem is that our systems are not aligned with, um, you know, the needs of the community. What's so distressing about this, which is my second point, is that because we've been so successful in reaching certain communities, and I'm going to focus primarily on the white MSM community, mm-hmm. which that's terrific. I think any person who is at risk should be able to access PrEP. But given that we're doing such a great job there, it actually is sort of an interesting contra- uh, contradiction that it further exacerbates the inequities. And so we, yeah. we talk a lot about like now the face of HIV being in certain communities, and we often will talk about those communities as being at risk. But what about the sort of inequity in our preventative measures mm-hmm. that are fueling the inequity and the difference that is unfair and unjust? And we very rarely talk about that. Yes, no, I, I totally agree. And I've often talked about like the browning um, of, of the epidemic. And I think I remember seeing a modeling study looking at time to the end of HIV epidemic for different um, racial ethnic groups in different cities. And there were several, maybe four cities that were focused on large metropolitan areas. Um, and for some of them, in terms of epidemic levels of HIV, are no longer at non-epidemic levels for HIV for white Americans in those cities but persisting at epidemic levels for Black and Latino people. So still so much work to do. And I know that you have some familiarity with, um, you know, some different sort of strategies that, re- that are being used to um, reduce inequities. Um, and I wonder also specifically about elucidating and getting a sense of, you know, what is going on in terms of transmission. And so can you just like talk with us a little bit about what we're sort of seeing in terms of um, HIV transmission and how that might inform HIV prevention strategies? Sure. Great, great question. Uh, So I think, you know, one of the things only that has been really striking is that the CDC has been doing some amazing work on detection of of, uh, groups or clusters of individuals where HIV is transmitting more rapidly than what we would normally expect. And these clusters represent, in my view, and in the view of folks that are working on cluster response, system failures. It's a place where either our prevention or our treatment, which treatment, we, I would argue, and I think many would, is also prevention, um, that it's not working, that somehow there's misalignment between our HIV prevention and treatment services and individuals who are most at risk. And so uh, across the United States, uh, what we see is that there are these cluster outbreaks. And these are places where there's a group of five or more new infections uh, that are happening quite rapidly. And so there was a recent report that was uh, done that was published in the MMWR that really identified 136 clusters where transmission was occurring across more than 1,200 individuals uh, who were detected to be living with HIV. Uh, and this was in 19 different states. And the 19 states are across the four regions of our country. But I want to point out that there was a disproportionate burden in the South, which, which mm-hmm. had about 10, if I'm not mistaken, of the 19 states. What was interesting is that across the clusters, when you start to sort of look in and see who is a member of the cluster, you see a couple of, of uh, patterns that I think are pretty uh, sort of sort of symbolic of the inequity theme that we're talking about today. The first is that primarily MSM. So so Mm. close to 70% of individuals that are in the clusters identify as MSM. I think what's also true is that there's about half of the clusters are in the South, and the South has been an area Mm. 
where HIV unfortunately uh, continues to thrive and incidents in the South, new infections continues to be more robust than what we should, where we should be given our ending the HIV epidemic goals. Um, but it's not just the South, it's the Northeast, it's the Midwest, it's the West. There were clusters detected across mm-hmm. the country. There's just about half in the South. When we think about race and ethnicity, we see disproportionate burden among African-American, Black, and Latino. Uh, and so that uh, those two groups represent more than, you know, close to 50 or to six, actually I would say 60% of the individuals in the clusters. And then a third are white. Uh, again, uh, MSM, I think what's really striking and uh, something of great concern that hasn't gotten a lot of attention is that uh, about two-thirds of the of the individuals in the clusters are, are 30 years of age or under. And so, again, young, uh, across the United States, but particular emphasis on the South, Latino, Black, but obviously not only Latino and Black, and young MSM, uh, you know, over overly represented in the clusters. Well, yes, I mean, that's just, um, you know, this sort of movement of that the epicenter HIV to, to the South, and we know, you know, transportation, you know, probably is a huge challenge. Uh, and you're located in North Carolina, so I'm sure you are sort of seeing a lot of this um, firsthand and issues around. Um, many, we know many of the states have not expanded Medicaid, so less insurance coverage. So lots, lots of barriers that folks are facing. And I'm wondering, when you mentioned about the young MSM, like how about about two thirds of the um, the men in those clusters were under the age of 30, and that is so absolutely striking and so devastating. Um, and I'm wondering if you can, you know, give us a sense of what why what may be a driver of that of that um, that this this phase of the epidemic is really impacting young young men. I mean, what a great what a great question. I think only you know my entire career has been focused on young people, and uh, first and foremost, I would say that young people are largely invisible. And mm-hmm. you know, we typically think of young people as being healthy. We tend to underestimate that they may mm-hmm. be sexually active or using substances. We uh, have tended to sometimes adopt uh, services that are not very youth friendly. They may be yeah. really geared towards adults and so they don't meet the needs of young people. We often have um, state policies that restrict young mm-hmm. people being able to access sexual and reproductive health services to maintain their sexual health. We may uh, have views that are sort of con- uh, sort of counter uh, what's really happening in terms of our national appetite for really accepting that the vast majority of young people at some point during high school become sexually active. Mm-hmm. Again, I think developmentally, young people are experiencing their sexual debut and they may not have had enough uh, sexual education around how they can protect themselves. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, both the approval uh, for uh, the use of Travada, which was our original PrEP, mm-hmm. um, you know, oral medication, and also when we think about providers making the offer to individuals, the approval was later for young people. Mm-hmm. It, it was much later in terms of ensuring that it was safe and efficacious for young people. And we just haven't done a good job as a country at having uh, our testing, PrEP, and other sexual and reproductive health services reach uh, you know, mm-hmm. young people. And I would say most disturbing is that there has been, in my view, uh, sort of a direct attack on sexual and reproductive health across a number of areas, whether it be you know, uh, abortion and sort of the Dobbs case, or it be really around uh, some of the states that are pushing back on federal funding for HIV prevention or recent court rulings in certain parts of our country 
that are uh, suggesting that employers don't have to cover based mm -hmm. on uh, religious objections, or um, or just if I think about the complete uh, invisibility of the fact that for more than seven consecutive, actually eight consecutive years, STIs have been increasing in our country, half of them uh, you know, occurring in a given year among young people, and there's been almost no recognition that mm -hmm. this is a problem and that we need to address it. There's a, there's a lot to say, Oni. Yeah. No, thank you for, for all of those really important um, nuggets. And we can see sort of how sort of vast, you know, there's so many barriers and issues that need to be addressed. But I think, as you know, as providers, I think you made such a, this point that, like, crap, it's like one of the few HIV prevention strategies that, like, requires a provider to like to be on board and to like share information about PrEP um, with anyone who could potentially benefit from it. Um, and so it's really, you know, incumbent, you know, in terms of our audience that's watching, you know, really, if you if you have um, all patients actually should know about PrEP, I always say, like, everyone should know about it. It may not be, you know, a good fit for everyone, but at least there's they, they're aware of it. They can share that information with other folks. Um, and then we also know there's a lot of, you know, there can there are providers who may not be culturally competent or linguistically um, competent. We know that also there can be a lot of enacted um, st stigma or discrimination. And we mentioned, you know, you know, mentioned some a number of sort of laws being passed, but even just anti-trans, anti-gay sentiment can make it very challenging for folks to even come into the healthcare setting. So I'm just wondering if you could just, you know, share with us a little bit more if patients have shared with you their experiences of, of seeking care and having to deal with, um, you know, homophobia or just providers who are not trained and what providers can really do to create a more affirming and accepting environment, a clinical environment for their patients? Sure, it's a great question. I think as a provider, um, what I would encourage and certainly what I uh, teach uh, folks who are seeking to care for individuals living or at risk with HIV mm -hmm. is the importance of really being open and non-judgmental. Yes. Uh, really thinking through uh, how they're assessing, getting a sort of a good sexual history, um, asking yeah. about partners and behaviors, not assuming, mm -hmm. um, being sure that, you know, in my practice and, you know, I've had providers um, actually say that I'm incorrect about this, but only I don't, I don't agree with that. I, you know, I typically will do three-side testing for STIs mm -hmm. routinely, irrespective of what people are reporting, just because I feel that it is uh, so important to just normalize and to really focus on yeah. sexual health and not about risk or about doing something that uh, is in any way stigmatized, but really that it's important for all of us to uh, achieve our optimal health, and part of that is our sexual health. So that's how I approach conversations, very open, very nonjudgmental, very much uh, normalizing and mm -hmm. trying to get the information that I need and really trying to you know, look beyond what someone might be presenting because often in an interaction that is fairly focused, you might feel embarrassed. You might not want to yeah, share yeah. exactly what's going on. And so it's a missed opportunity to really just treat everybody in some ways the same and saying, hey, you know, we all need to get checked out. And this is really part of our sexual health. That's so important. I'm so glad that you raised that, like creating a, a non-judgmental, like sex positive environment um, for folks really normalizing discussions around um, sexual health. Um, because we know for, you know, for many patients, it can be very, you're in a very vulnerable position, like coming in, you may have met the provider for the first time. So whatever we can do as providers to create um, that safe environment, I think is so important. 
I'm also wondering, I know a lot of your, your work, um, both research and clinical, has focused on the Latino community, and I'm wondering if there are specific um, barriers or issues that um, folks are confronting or facing in the Latino community, which may make engaging in HIV prevention more challenging. I mean, I think only what I would say first and foremost is I think for many communities of color, including the Latino community, mm -hmm. there's been a ton of invisibility. And mm -hmm. 40 years into the epidemic, we're still talking about some of the same things. So it's, to be honest, you know, as a provider and as someone who's been working for many years in the HIV space, it's disappointing that we haven't been able to evolve some of the conversations that today we're yeah. still talking about the inequities. So I would say, you know, first and foremost, we need to come to terms as a country that if we are going to, in fact, uh, achieve the ending epidemic uh, goals, that we're going to need to straight on address the inequities. That mm -hmm. means every mm -hmm. single provider seeing HIV prevention and treatment as part of their repertoire of what they will bring forward mm -hmm. to care. It also means uh, being able to ask tough questions. It means being able to extend our services to the populations that are most in need. It means getting comfortable as providers with our own uh, biases and really owning that oftentimes the data suggests that uh, our patients do not see us as being trustworthy. Mm -hmm. We typically focus on whether or not the patients trust us versus are we trustworthy? Yeah. How are we signaling our yeah. trustworthiness in that clinical interaction? It also means uh, really being monitoring our behaviors and really thinking through when we have judgments or bias or we have gut level reactions when someone comes in, you know, we, we don't like them. And so we mm -hmm. treat them differently. We fail to raise, uh, you know, certain questions or issues or even in many cases. And I know that this is true. The data supports this, although I think it's been hard for many of us as providers to accept that we may not even be following protocols and offering what we know are the sort of life-saving preventative mm -hmm. treatments uh, to all people that come through our doors. That, that's a tough one, Oni, for me, because yes. I know that individually we all care mm -hmm. about providing uh, health to people, healthcare. But the truth of the matter is the data supports that oftentimes collectively we fail at being able to ensure that we're providing uh, the correct protocols to each and every patient. Exactly. Now, this is you know, such, such powerful, powerful, powerful um, lessons learned and things that we need to do as healthcare providers to ensure that, you know, our patients um, are receiving evidence-informed, evidence-based um, care. Um, one strategy that I really enjoyed using with patients um, in terms of talking about PrEP is I use, like, the ask, tell, ask. A model. So I'll be like, well, you know, um, you know, tell me, tell me what you know about um, prep, or would you mind if I share with you some information about it? And then um, I often then, you know, will um, they say they they give me their permission, and so I'll say, okay, well, this is what we know, blah blah blah. And then they'll say, oh wow, okay, well, I didn't know this, but this is something new. So I think like also just creating opportunities um, for our patients to. To, to, to really ask questions, to sort of react to what information that we have shared with them and to do in a way that is sort of centers their autonomy. So like always, like instead of just launching into like, oh, you should know about PrEP, you know, asking like, is it okay if I, if I tell you about this, if I share this information with you? And I'm wondering like, you know, for you, like other st strategies that you have found helpful um, well, you talked about, again, normalizing sexual health discussions, um, coming from a place of non-judgment, open-ended questions, probably re really helpful. 
Yes. I mean, I love what you said about ask, tell, ask. I think that's a great strategy. And I think many of the things that you just repeated that I shared are things that I bring to my work yes. with young people. Uh, but I would say, you know, even with adults, but certainly with young people, just expressing an interest and concern mm -hmm. in their lives and trying mm -hmm. to understand what do they want out of their sex lives and how can I optimize the positives while reducing things yeah. that if you ask young people or patients in general, they don't want a negative outcome. It's just getting really open and honest about how we can plan together to really prevent that from happening while accepting whatever it is that they're doing and supporting yeah. them yeah. in pursuing what their goals are. You know, I ask often only when I see people, what is it that is most important for you to get mm -hmm. out of today's uh, visit? And I start with that. And then I say, well, can I ask you about some things that are on my mind? And so yeah, again, it's a give and take, it's a relationship. I think that, uh, you know, expressing that you care matters an yeah. awful lot. Oh, I'm going to steal that one from you, if that's okay. I really, really love that, that approach. And I think it really it reminds me of the framing of like, you know, what matters to you, like asking our patients what matter to them, what are their priorities versus like, what's the matter with them? Yeah, I think we come at them from, you know, have these discussions from a risk pr perspective, our patients can really begin to, to disengage. Um, so I, I really love that. So again, really keeping it open-ended. Um, I also like to just reflect back, you know, when I'm hearing, it's, it sounds like you've taken a lot of, you know, you know, steps to stay safe um, or, to, or to protect yourself from HIV. I'm wondering, uh, but it seems like you have some concerns about the safety. Let's talk about that. Because um, sometimes it can be a little hard, you know, in these discussions. So I try to like encapsulate it too, just to reflect back what I'm hearing. So I think just very clear from what you have shared, also like so many strategies that we can use as healthcare providers to create a safe space, safer space for many of our patients to have these discussions. You know, one of the things that you just shared that I love so much is, uh, you know, at the beginning of our session today, we talked about sort of PrEP indications and eligibility. And those clinical guidelines, you know, a lot of it's focused on risk. Mm -hmm. And we have to repeat that because those are our guidelines. But the thing that is really challenging is that often when we encounter a person, certainly in my practice, I'm not really talking about risk. I'm talking about yeah. sexual health. And yeah. I think the more yeah. that we make it about risk, the harder it is for people to say, hey, in the past six months, I did have an STI, or I do have a new partner, or I engage in anal or oral or vaginal yeah. sex, or I use crystal meth and I inject. And I think part of what we want to do is create an opportunity for people to share what's really happening in their lives and to sort of partner with them and how we can preserve the parts of their lives that they want that are positive yes. Yes. while also reducing the harms. And they want yes. that. But they don't want our that. judgment as providers. They want yeah. us to kind of keep it real and be open. I love that. Okay, that's a, such a wonderful note to, um, for us to um, think about and in terms of moving to, like, potential resources that either, um, like, patients potentially could use for, um, like, finding out more information about PrEP or finding, like, PrEP providers. Um, are there any, like, go-tos that you – that you share with, with patients or folks that you are maybe in conversation with around, around HIV prevention? Sure. Well, I, I typically use the HIV.gov website. There's yeah. Ready Prep, which I think is a great uh, resource. I also, uh, you know, I like that it provides free medications, particularly for people that are yeah. uninsured or underinsured. I love some of the campaigns that are there around stigma reduction, mm -hmm. which I realize, mm -hmm. um, you know, in order to make PrEP uh, sort of really reach people. We've got to not only provide 
the laboratory, uh, you know, laboratory and clinical supports and the medications, mm -hmm. but we've got to help people to be comfortable with PrEP. I think some yeah. of that stigma reduction is really critical. I think, um, you know, some of the, the please PrEP uh, me site or the HIV source site, mm -hmm. uh, I think greater than HIV. There are a number of sites that are yeah. really useful that I think uh, are out there. And then I would say, you know, only the, the places that I love the most are really the comprehensive sites that just mm -hmm. don't focus mm -hmm. on one aspect. Mm -hmm. And so one of the sites that I really love is something called the bedsider.org, mm -hmm. which has contraception and prep, and it has lots of, has STI information, and it's got a clinic locator. It's got uh, an interactive uh, tool for asking a question and getting a response. There's also Planned Parenthood's uh, chat text program mm -hmm. where you can get a live person to answer your question. That one's pretty cool. I've oh, sometimes been questioning and gotten a live response back. Right. And it's just, I just, I just love when people can get accurate information yeah. that they can access on their own. This is so awesome. No, thank you. You shared so many, I think, really excellent um, sources and sites that um, both as providers, but also as patients um, that can be used. So this is really, really wonderful. I also know the CDC has uh, Let's Stop HIV Together resources, and some of them are also focused um, on PrEP as well. And just want to say your point around the comprehensive sites. I, I feel like I really appreciate that because I think also – you know, PrEP is not just about, it's not, it's about sort of like, not just the medication, it's a bundle of care, and it's about sort of holistic care and, you know, focused on someone's sexual health, and I think that can also help to destigmatize, um, you know, HIV prevention and HIV more generally, so thank you so much, and I think we're going to, you know, to draw to a close and just share some summarizing um, or some final thoughts with the audience um, that we hope you were able to take away um, and, uh, and are able to apply to your clinical practice. Um, one is around really identifying appropriate PrEP options um, for your patients based on what the indication might be and the delivery um, method um, of that approach. Um, recognizing and addressing drivers of PrEP inequities in your local community and practice environment. I'm sure a lot of what um, Dr. Guillermo Ramos um, shared and some of what, what I may have mentioned also might resonate with you when thinking about things that you're seeing, some of these structural um, drivers of um, HIV inequities. Um, you know, using open-ended, non-judgmental approaches like the ask-tell-ask method when we're talking to our patients about PrEP or when we're wanting to initiate those discussions, also open-ended questions as well, and then, um, you know, wonderful tools and resources that were just shared by Dr. Guillermo Ramos um, to really get folks, you know, educated and informed about PrEP so um, we can also work with them um, so that they're able to make the best um, decision possible for themselves in terms of their sexual health. Um, and thank you again so much to Dr. Guillermo Ramos for joining me today, for sharing your wisdom, your expertise, all of it. And thank you to our audience for participating and providing the best care for patients. Take care. Thank you so much, Dr. Blackstock. It was my honor. Thank you. Thank you.